whoever you are, wherever you are, you're wanted. It's important that you're here. And who's to say what else you might contribute to this world and this universe? Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. And I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. Hey there. Thanks so much for joining us for this special episode of the Living Center Podcast. In honor of National Suicide Prevention Week, we invited OnSite's lead clinician, Carlos Martinez, to help us create a safe space to talk about something that affects so many people. We hope that this conversation meets you where you are today and offers you some hope and healing on your journey. Whether you or someone you love is impacted by the effects of suicide, you are not alone. I'm so grateful for the way that Carlos showed up in this episode. He graciously leads us through this conversation and shares his personal and professional experience to help us tackle a topic that feels too big to handle alone. Our hope is that by talking about suicide, we can all seek to show up better for ourselves and the people we love by fostering more empathy and connection. At the top of this episode, we wanted to say if you or a loved one are struggling with suicide, we encourage you to reach out for professional help. You can find support at TWLOHA.com or by calling the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. No matter what you're facing, there's a way forward. Healing is possible. You matter. Carlos, we are so excited to have you with us today. I think to talk about something that we think is really important, and we just wanted to create space to have an honest conversation about suicide. As you might know, it is National Suicide Prevention Week. And in honor of that, I think this is a really taboo subject that we just want to create space to talk about, because I think, like a lot of taboo subjects, we think if we talk about it, then it's going to plant an idea in someone's mind, or we're not going to be safe space or we're going to do it wrong. And so we just want to open the doors and invite you in to have an honest conversation. So thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. I'd love to just kind of start there. Like, why do you think as a global perspective, we need to be talking about suicide? I think it's important to let people know that they're really, this is a topic that really should not be off limits. And like you said, Mackenzie, it, Sometimes people have the perception that, oh, no, if I mention this, then it's in someone's mind and then they would make it worse. Whereas in reality, it's, sometimes people are just waiting for some validation and acknowledgement of, OK, I see that this is what you've been thinking or how you've been feeling. And the fact that I see you in it, I want to let you know that it, I'm here with you in the experience and I want to know, lean in and curiosity what can you tell me about it? You know, it's something that as uh, as therapists and receiving some training about it, we know that mentioning it doesn't put the idea in someone's mind. It actually is relieving um, mm. as a form of saying, hey, I see you. And when I, would, I worked in a hospital as a, as a screener for a time, and yeah. we would just come out and ask very plainly, have you thought about uh, ending your life? Have you thought about uh, completing suicide? And a, kind of a corollary question to that, um, if you could be anywhere in the world right now, right now, where would you be? And if someone 
answered with, you know, I, I would be in the Bahamas or I would be in Hawaii or anywhere but here, then we would know, okay, well, that person has some hope, you know, they would want to be somewhere <laughs> other than here. But if they say, I don't care, I, 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 I don't want to be anywhere, then we know that that person, just like the, their, it feels like the, the sands in the hourglass are, are reaching the end and, and there has to be some movement in turning that hourglass upside down. I guess a couple of years ago, um, within like a two week period, there were a couple of suicides of people in my like wider circle that I knew, mm. uh, neither of them did I know well, but a lot of my close friends were very close friends with these people and, and they were slightly connected. And I just remember sort of as we processed that as a community that, you know, everyone's like, were there warning signs? Who knew? And that, that both were really influential, successful men that seemed to have it all together. And I, since then, a person that was connected to both of them that is a guy, like now ask all his guy friends, like, are you, do you ever think about suicide? You know, it was like, yeah. it, it went from something that he never thought about or talked about to being like, I need to be asking all my friends if they're struggling with this because I just, I don't want to be so surprised and caught off guard by it. But I think it is hard to know. And until we make the conversation less taboo and allow yeah. people to be able to say I'm struggling a little bit or I'm struggling a lot and I don't know if I want to continue living that, that I think the idea of somebody living alone with those thoughts it is just hard you know it's, mm -hmm. it's um, being able to invite people into it seems like that would be helpful yeah mm -hmm. I remember after it, it seemed like it happened very quickly, um, almost together, where they stand out in my mind about that Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade. Oh, yeah. You know, people who 100% at the top of their game. Yeah. 100% managing their media presence, managing their, their what we might um, label as success, just gone. And yeah. I remember from that hearing people say make sure you check in on all your friends not just the ones who you think are okay yeah. you know sometimes check in on the ones who are who seem like they have it or you haven't checked in on a while because yeah. you yeah. never know you absolutely never know so i want to say off the bat coming into this topic in this podcast hopefully i'm coming across with a sense of uh hopefully some humility I have an awareness that uh, there are people who have survived someone having died by suicide in their lives, that it's a completely different world. Yeah. Um, and in thinking about the prep for the show and, and thinking about the topic, initially I thought, well, what do I know about this? And I did have a few thoughts, you know, like personally in my own story, I have someone in my extended family that has had at least... I want to say three suicide attempts that I know of. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I did a story around even finding out about that first suicide attempt and uh, just the, the craziness around that. 
And then having some moments in my own recovery and, and moments of deep pit depression where like decades ago, but um, yeah. looking at some medicine and medicine cabinet thinking, would it be okay if I didn't wake up mm. again? And thinking, yeah. yeah, and I'm not there yet, but, you know, and so I think it's so easy for us to, to not look at that, to, to willingly look away mm. at the things that truly have impacted all of us. And if we would just take a moment to, Lindsay, like you said, like your friend, you know, our family members, our extended family, that uncle, that that cousin or that coworker, and lean in in curiosity for those conversations. We would we would find that the the common thread is much more it's it's much stronger and it's much more vibrant than we give it credit for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that with us, Carlos, because I think it really does normalize the conversation. And I think I'm really grateful that you are here. And when we asked you to do it, I said, I know you are someone who approaches hard topics in a way that invites other people in. And I'm really Mm -hmm. grateful to have you on this podcast. But I'm also grateful for the way that you show up and leading out and saying, here shows up in my story, or here's who I am. And um, you are always bringing your own story and your own experiences into that um, and offering it Mm -hmm. to it as a gift. And I'm really grateful for that. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. And as we've been talking about, you know, Lindsay was sharing, she has a guy friend that says, I'm just going to ask people now. Um, And you were talking about explicitly asking the people in the hospital that you're working at and screening. What does it look like for the people in our lives when we've got that fear and that tension of, I don't, I don't know if I want to ask them, but also as we start to normalize the conversation that it impacts so many people, whether it's from the early stages depression, whether it's an ideation or whether it's an actual attempt, how do we approach the people in our lives um, with empathy and love and understanding and just ask that question? What does that look like? I think the the hesitancy to ask the question, maybe it's it has to do with a realization of I wouldn't know what to do with it if they said yes. And so, like, I'm, I, I care about my friend. I care about my sister, brother, uncle, whoever. But then if they were to say, yeah, I'm pretty freaking depressed. I, I'm, I've thought about not waking up or, you know, something along those lines, then, then what? Right. And then we have to figure out, okay, well, you know, um, it's like asking you know, this horrible analogy, <laughs> but it's like asking someone, hey, do you need a ride? And they say, yeah, I do. Oh, well, I don't have a car, but I hear the ride and let's hmm, let's figure that out. If you ask someone, hey, how are you really? Then you're presupposing I would know what to do with that if you told me. Mm, yeah. And then the question becomes, do we know what to do with it? And do we have the resources? And because we are so, I think, sometimes so mentally or emotionally mentally resource poor we just know what to do with it i think the easier opt-out would be to look at these people and think they're fine they're fine they haven't talked about in a while they're they're fine or you know yeah they sure are sad Hmm. hey i'm here for you buddy you know but but nothing in depth and so maybe the first steps are if you're going to be willing to ask and check in on those people who, you know, hmm, they can really benefit from that. And frankly, those are all 
all of us. <laughs> that's that's the side note. We all want connection and we all want to be checked on. We all want to be seen. So if it goes to the turn of I'm really not doing okay, <laughs> then would we be willing to say, you know what, I hear that. I don't know what to do with this, but let's find out together. Yeah. And how do we even ease some of that of equipping people before they go into that conversation? I think about just being prepared for that conversation. Okay, what what are the possible outcomes? They may say to me, hey, actually, I'm doing a lot better. Thanks so much just for being with me. I really appreciate that you checking in with me. But they may also say, no, I'm really hurting. I'm in a scary place. What do we do with that? What would be our next step? What would be the next step you would suggest, Carlos? Yeah, I think first step is in gratitude saying, thank you for sharing that with me. And then offering the space to to hear them. I think sometimes we get so uncomfortable with other people's emotional pain that we want immediately to go to, all right, let's do this. Let's fix it. Let's, let's fix it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, let's let's get you this. Let's let's figure that out. And sometimes starting with, oof, that is a lot. Um, mm-hmm. Thank you. And how can I be here for you? Or, or I want to let you know that I am here with you and right. for you. And, and, and generally, I am for you. And you're not alone in this. And so now what? That's the first step, I think. And then if you're willing to sit in that discomfort of knowing my friend is in pain, my friend is in so much pain, they actually think that the world would be better off without them in it. Mm-hmm. That's how when I do remember those times when when I was so deep in the hole thinking everyone would be better off if I were not on anymore and how I look at that now and think, oh, my God, that's so upside down. But at the moment, it made complete sense to me. It was it felt like the most natural thinking in the world. And so to be the person who's willing to sit with you in that space initially and say, whew, I see how hard this is. Now, how can I help you if you want to walk out of this or if you want some resources or here's the to write love on our arms or here's the community phone number or here's the 24-hour hotline or do you need me to come over? Mm. Do you want to grab a pizza? You know, just something. Yeah, you mentioned kind of the discomfort that we feel and sitting and not solving. Um, we mm-hmm. talk a lot about it on site, like holding space for someone. Could you just define what that means and how do we do that well? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. <laughs> 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 I think what it means is when someone comes to me with their pain, my response in holding a container for their pain is to meet them, meet their gaze and to sometimes sit in silence or to say, if I were you, I would be feeling that exact same way. Mm. I get why you would be feeling that way. Or to say, I have no frame of reference for that. And I'm just so glad that you told me about that. I imagine like, if I were you, I, I would probably be feeling that way too. Mm. Yeah. It's validation. It's, acknowledgement where we grow up in so many systems of you don't feel that way oh come on you know 
pick yourself up, dust yourself off. People have it worse in the world. Are you kidding me? I think offering space is being the person who will not jump into solution solving, you know, problem fixing, but Mm -hmm. to say, I hear you, I see you, I accept you, and I'm just, I'm going to feel with you. Mm-hmm. And oh my God, if we don't have an aversion to that, that's all. Mm-hmm. That feels like a whole separate <laughs> episode. Yeah. I yeah. think, you know, in, in different times in my story, when I've been in my darkest, I think one of the the most kind and beautiful things someone said to me is that your emotions are not too mm-hmm. big. I'm not scared. I'm not going anywhere. What are some things the two of you that people have said to you in like hard, dark moments that have been the most impactful? Because sometimes I think we don't say anything because we're afraid to say the wrong thing. Yeah. Lindsay? I, I am more of a feeling internalizer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Totally. I, 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 it is pretty sacred if I've let someone into that level of feeling. Mm. And so I think like having space and just saying they're with me, just reminding people that they're with me. Um, yeah. I was thinking earlier, I'd love to hear Carlos's answer to that question too, but I was thinking earlier that not all of our thoughts and feelings are rational, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that they don't all have to make sense, but it's still helpful to know what they are, kind of. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think that a lot of times when it comes to like imagining a world without Carlos, and that mm. Carlos could think that the world would ever be better without him, uh, even in a moment. In my mind, I'm like, I just, I, I know so much better than that. You know, like I just, I see the beauty and the value and the blessing that he brings everywhere he goes. And so just, I think that around suicide in particular, like allowing room for the things that don't make sense and still vocalizing them. If they're like, I get in those head loops about different things and a lot of about around a lot of times for me, it's anxiety uh, Mm -hmm. that I get in a loop about and I kind of can't stop. And the thing that I don't want to do is vocalize it because I'm scared that's going to make it more real. (laughs) Yeah. But if I actually vocalize it, then I feel like people can start to refute it and like help, right size it. And so I think this whole conversation is just a reminder to be more vocal about the things that are like lingering under the surface and like festering inside me. I think us even talking about this is just giving me more permission to say things Mm -hmm. that I might not say to somebody because I think that then inviting somebody into them helps take some of the air out of them. Mm. So, thank you. I guess ultimately, Mackenzie, like you said, like being told through words and actions, your feelings are not too much, you know, and it's just so great having a blessing of those kinds of relationships where the people in my life can can handle it because this can get dark really quickly. (laughs) I've described myself sometimes as if, if I'm in a space. If I'm in that space, I can become a gravity well. Like I can, no light escapes this <laughs> this thing yeah. that is in my core. And it's also good to know that it doesn't last. It hasn't lasted. And I've been able to work on myself and invest in myself and find hope in, in times that, that felt hopeless. 
are there things practically that help you in seasons of darkness or depression sort of turn the corner practically if somebody is sort of finds themselves in a season where they're feeling more depressed and weary of the world? Yeah, I think one is being connected with a really good therapist, someone who can who can walk along the journey with me. Yeah. Something that, that Miles says that I really like is he will often say to people who come and do workshops that you don't need this, you deserve it. Yeah. Mm, yeah. You know, and having had someone walk alongside me. And so number one is doing, doing the connection work of mental health. And then number two is appreciating the, the successes and then, being gentle with myself to define what those successes were. Cause I remember in those moments where one day brushing my teeth was like, Oh my Wow. <laughs> like I brushed my teeth today. I checked the mail today. And for me in that space, that was good. Yeah. That was good. And it had to be good enough. Mm. And what I appreciate about the, the journey and the support network that I've been on that, that I've been with and the journey I've been on is uh, before it might be usual for me to go into a hole for two months. And I've seen that go from two months to two weeks to two days to maybe overnight. And it's not that they never happen. It's that the, the recovery time gets shorter. I think that's really beautiful. I think so many times I want to in my own life, only celebrate if it looks a specific way and I don't give myself the room and space to have grown or to say, hey, I'm in process. Like literally last week, my therapist said to me, will you give yourself permission and let yourself off the hook for not being farther down the road and just being where you are today? And where you are today is that this is hard and it's showing up this way. And where you are today, you brushed your teeth. Where you are today you're able to look at this scary thing for two minutes and then tomorrow, maybe you'll look at it a little bit longer. Yeah. But yeah, I just love that. I think it's so it's not, it's not, it doesn't come easily to me, but I think it's important when we're talking about this kind of recovery and this kind of topic. Yeah, that's so good. And I think it's important to, to give things their due. Mm, I think sometimes we can, we can romanticize self-care and self-help and best antidepressant exercise, right? Sunlight, fresh air, pictures of Anthony Bourdain. That dude was ripped. <laughs> that dude, I mean, he was like no body fat. There are people who live in their best lives physically. Mm-hmm. In clinical depression, sometimes medicine is, it's part of the best way out in Mm -hmm. giving ourselves the space to say, okay, well, you might be ripped. You might be down to 3% body fat where normally we would say, okay, well, if you want to feel better, make sure you exercise or, you know, it's the best endorphins. Sometimes clinical depression, major depressive disorder, Mm -hmm. you're going to need wrap around everything. Yeah. And let that be okay. Because ultimately I guess what I would say is whoever you are, wherever you are, you're wanted. It's important that you're here and 
who's to say what else you might contribute to this world and this universe? If I had followed through with those thoughts years, you know, decades ago of, you know, it, I, I don't think people would be that upset if I were gone. It might simplify other people's lives. I think about the thousands of people that I've been able to work with. And mm. uh, if I can say so, like that, they would have been cheated out of that. Can, yeah. Is that is that we w- weird we to say? <laughs> we all would have been cheated, yes. Yeah. 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 I, when you were talking, I was thinking about our psychiatrist on staff, Dr. Bomar, is also a practicing medical doctor. And being able to learn from him and hear about sort of the connection between our physical health and our mental health and um, sometimes, like, we literally have blockers that are not allowing us to absorb the serotonin that we need. Like, that there are, there's such a correlation between our physical and our mental health, and that medicines can help, and that also sometimes, like, supplements and, like, really getting a full workup of mm-hmm. our, what is going on with our hormones and things like that can be so revelatory in to figuring out why we feel the way that we do. And I, I just, mm-hmm. I think had I not worked here, I wouldn't have ever known that or thought to tell my internist <laughs> that I'm not sleeping well or that I'm depressed or that I'm having, you know, darker thoughts than normal, but that there are yeah. things that they could even do, blood panels that they could run that might start to reveal a bigger picture. It, it was is just helpful for me to know. So it's interesting, yeah, physical and mental connection. And I love that you were really explicit, Carlson, saying like it's not one thing. There are so many things that play into a holistic way to approach your mental health. You know, whether it's medicine, whether it's working out, all of those things. And I love Lindsay that you were mentioning talking about it to people that you may not normally talk to about it, like your internal doctor, or you know, saying, "Hey, I think this is coming up." What are some things for ourselves that we can see as warning signs, or for the people in our lives that we see as warning signs? I know, Carlos, you mentioned like a lack of hope. Asking people those questions. What are some other things that we can do that would maybe? make us aware to think, oh, I should ask the question of myself or of other people. Yeah. So we'd, I describe depression or clinical depression would be everything is going right. Everything is firing on all cylinders and everything tastes like burnt ashes. Mm. You know, for some people, there are really good reasons to feel sad. There are really good reasons to feel depressed. Um, history of trauma. If we have overwhelming trauma or if we're working through pains from our childhood, I think in addition to that, if things are are going well or if they're not going well and there's just no joy and there's no hope, there's no there's no looking towards the future then that's when that would be a great early warning system, like alarm to go off for us to have the internal conversation. Okay. We're at, we're at DEFCON one and now's the time. Now's the time. Oh gosh, this is years and um, years ago. uh, When I worked at a mental health intensive outpatient, we used a resource called the RAP. It was called the, wellness and recovery action plan and basically it was designed by someone who herself had been in recovery and 
started getting into the mental health field. She was on, had been on medicine and the medicine stopped working. And she realized that she needed some other resources besides uh, the medicine. And she started developing this, this wraparound care, the wellness recovery action plan. And the gist of it is basically when I'm at um, DEF CON 5, this is what I might expect. And this is, these are the behaviors I might do. If I slip into DEF CON 4, these are the things I should look for. These are the things I should be on the lookout for. These are the person, the people I could en- enlist in my plan. If I get to DEF CON 3 and all the way down to DEF CON 1, these are the behaviors and these are the choices I can step into. And along with everything mental health, I think we do those plans when we don't need them so we can use them when we do. Yeah. We practice the tools when we don't, when we don't need them. So we can utilize the tools when we do need them. That's really good. Mm-hmm. I think it feels like, you know, if you don't, if you don't use a muscle, it starts to get fatigued. And so practicing it and laying out a plan before you even get to or need that, I think is such a, a really tangible, practical thing that we can do and think through. Um, it really is challenging to me. I think I have things when I have anxiety attacks, like here are things that I know to do and there are things that I've practiced and honed and, over the years know how to meet myself in that, but it's learned in doing that when I, when I wasn't in that heightened state, because when we are in that heightened state, like you were saying, Lindsay, sometimes my thoughts just, they don't make sense. When my, my brain is not, is catastrophizing and I'm not going to be able to think rationally about this. So if I can think through and practice before that, that's so important. So thank you for that tangible thing, Carlos. Mm-hmm. Carlos, I was just wondering, can we talk about some of the language around suicide? I've noticed some shifts in our conversation or even how you're phrasing things. So I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. So there's a time when people would say uh, someone committed suicide and then the languaging uh, might have turned to someone completed suicide. I think there are some problems with that. I was talking over with a colleague in front of mine, actually, Madison, who I've done a mm-hmm. webinar with before, who had um, kind of highlighted that probably nowadays the best practice is just to say yeah. someone died by suicide. And it takes it away from any kind of judgment around the act mm-hmm. of attempting to or completing it, completing the action, and just saying, no, they have, they've died by suicide mm-hmm. and they're no longer with us. And I think that's probably the best practice of what we can understand. That's a great distinction. And I think it's so important. And for me, I think it's a really beautiful invitation to just change my language and be conscious in a way that I may not have known that I've been inherently um, hurtful for other people or activating um, in a really Mm -hmm. tender spot of their story. So, yeah, it's interesting. uh, You talk about the language. I had a friend that was processing the death by suicide of a close friend. And he, he was saying, you know, it's hard for me to even grasp what suicide is. It's sort Mm -hmm. of like one of those terms that we use, but like, he was like, as I really sat with it, I didn't know, like I couldn't like assign meaning to it as it happened to him really close up. And he, his way of sort of untangling it was, it was like I had to eventually like learn, like adopt the language. My friend, my friend was murdered by my friend. 
for him to be able to like understand the weightiness of in mm. grief fully. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that, you know, that might read harsh to some and isn't the right circumstance, but I think that our language is important and our digestion of what happened that sometimes we might have to think outside the box in terms of how we understand something that seems impossible to understand. Yeah. It's a horrifically violent act Yeah, that we're left to cope with. I think the attempts are violent. I think there's a violence inside of the person who is thinking, uh, does any of this matter? Does anyone see me? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we have to treat each one of those attempts as important and as important information that this person is trying to, to communicate to the world and to us. I've worked with populations where there, there are several suicide attempts. So sometimes friends or family or colleagues would say, oh, here we go. Again, you know, they're just looking for uh, attention. And my first thought is, so what? And if they are trying to get your attention, give them your attention. It may be the only way and maybe the best way that they know how to do that in that moment. And unfortunately, I've seen eye rolls turn into sobs of despair because eventually, and the the statistics show, that if someone has repeated, repeatedly, attempted to take their lives eventually through intention or by accident someone may well end up dying by suicide and it's those it's those accidental ones it's the ones that maybe started out as the cry that may not they may not have intended it and it ends up going there anyway yeah and so we have to to give due diligence and listen to the the voices in our lives of who are of those who are saying hey uh, even by behavior, who are saying, hey, look at me. Yeah. I'm in existential pain. It's unbearable to be alive. Mm. Hard to sit with. And what's harder still is living with the after effects. I want to know that that I did what I could. Mm. It, may not, it may not have been enough. And I want to know that I did what I could for those who are around me. Yeah. For those listeners that are sort of sitting in the unimaginable loss of a friend or family member or a loved one that has died by suicide, what would you say to them in the, in their grief? Uh, honestly, I, I don't know that I would say anything uh, other than that there just are no words. And I would say my hope would be that you would reach out to either a therapist or your support network or start building one. And there are support groups out there uh, for those who have survived. Loved ones who have who've died by suicide. Nobody knows your story like somebody who has walked in your story. And so the best, hopefully, I would be able to offer is presence and space and a willingness to lean in and say, tell me, tell me whatever you want to tell me, because I'm, I'm here to listen. I feel like on the whole, this is going to be a really um, viable resource for a lot of people, but I just want to, and we've mentioned a lot of good resources, and 
I'm hoping that people have a lot of takeaways, but I just want to be really explicit as we start to wrap up this conversation. What would be your encouragement to someone who is struggling with suicidality? Uh, my encouragement would be there are so many resources. There's so many, and by resources, I mean people. There's so many people who have been where you are at, who have thought those thoughts and come through the other side. I know part of the, the, the deep well of the gravity well is to believe that you are alone. Nobody could possibly understand this. And it's true. No one has been in your particular gravity well. And there are people who have been through their own gravity wells and who are on the other side asking, please, please listen to me. Know that I am here and I would love to be part of of the voices and the hands that help you through this. So like the hotlines to write love on our arms, the support group, they are there. Yeah. And I would ask you to push past the lies because I'm fantastic at lying to myself sometimes and believing that I have nothing to offer or that I'm alone. And it's, it's quite in, <laughs> invalidating to the people in my life who love me, mm-hmm. who you know, that that's my way of invalidating them because they would love to get the chance to to intervene for me and to let me know you you are wanted and loved. Really good. good. Thank you so much, Carlos, for yeah. your time today and just offering your wisdom and your empathy and and helping us better sit with people. Yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for hearing me. And I hope this was uh, hope it was helpful. Mm-hmm. Thank you. If you or someone you love is struggling with suicidal thoughts or ideation, we want to encourage you that there is hope. No matter what we're facing, there is always a way forward. Healing is possible. If you need immediate support, we encourage you to reach out to the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800 273 8255 or to the To Write Love on Her Arms crisis text line by texting TWLOHA to 741741. Your life matters. You matter. Keep going.